0: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money.
1: The best in
2: life free. But you can them to the
1: From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week for Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager from Motley Fool Income investor James Early, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Mr. Ron Gross. Gentlemen, wow. good to see you. Good to so, see you, thank Chris, you and Mr. Ron Gross. I, I gave you the mister this it's week. So Every once Sounds in a while, you give the mister to, to, yeah. to Jim Sinegal, so I gave you the mister. Uh, coming up a little later in the show, we will talk with Dan Gross, no relation to Ron, uh, columnist at Yahoo Finance and author of the new book, Better, Stronger, Faster, The Myth of American Decline and the Rise of the New Economy. But we are going to focus this week on the Facebook IPO. Uh, I should say, uh, we have got our company's annual meeting this week. So, we are actually taping this before Friday's IPO, but there is still, obviously, plenty to discuss beyond what happens that first day of trading. Um, Guys, let's let's start with the share price. Facebook has set the stock price um, at a range of $34 to $38 a share. Uh, Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple, has come out and said he will buy it at any price. Joe Mayer, I'll start with you. You buying at any price? No. uh, No stock
3: is a buy at any price. I'm sorry. And that just speaks to the mania around the stock. You know, so many of my friends who have never bought a stock before have come to me asking if they should invest in Facebook. And it's great that they're coming out of the woodwork and want to start investing, but it's not so great that they want to invest in something that they don't even really understand anything about the fundamentals or valuation
4: with. Jim. That's so true, so true. The problem is all these Facebook users are getting excited about it, and they want to buy the stock. So you've got all these yo-yos from an investing perspective, and <laughs> in respect I to of play. my kind friends are not yo-yos. Yo-yos, not, not these guys, other people. Um, <laughs> and, and and the problem is anytime that, that is a factor in a stock, like if you look at professional sports teams as another example, when you have non-investing factors piling into to the reasons why people buy, that's a bad sign for the long term. Ron? Ron? Gosh, I I won't even dissent. I wish I could.
5: It it would make for more interesting radio. I I give Facebook a ton of credit for what they've accomplished. It's really an amazing story. But at 100 times trailing earnings, I really can't get on board with that. And I think members should remember what these, these ratios are that we throw out. If you own the whole company and you pocketed all of their net income, it would take you 100 years to break even. Is that a long time? Now that assumes no growth, and we assume Facebook is going to be a high
1: grower. But let's put it in perspective: one hundred years. That's boy. When you put it that way, I mean, even the WAs wouldn't want to buy into shares of that. Um, What What do you think? um, And this, of course, requires a little bit of mind reading um, uh, on the part of the Facebook executives. But what do you think? uh, defines a successful IPO for them. I mean, is it is it a huge pop opening day, Joe? What do you th- what do you think they are hoping for over at Facebook?
3: Yeah, you want this middle ground where you want the stock to go up on the first day, so it creates some buzz and energy. But if it goes up too much, like fifty, sixty percent. That means that the company and original investors left money on the table. So a sweet spot is somewhere maybe in like the twenty-five percent, thirty percent ballpark, where everybody walks away pretty happy.
4: And I think they're playing this fiddle perfectly. I mean, what we're seeing now is is carefully manufactured frenzy with with this stock price being, you know, uh, going up towards the end. Uh, this whole thing is set up. Uh, rumors gradually probably leaked to the press uh, about everyone is so excited. This this anticipation builds and it, and it really helps Facebook. I think they've played it well
5: and let's we'll be cynical for the first half of the show and <laughs> uh, let's not forget why they're actually going public they're going public because they're soon to have over 500 shareholders and they were going to have to release public information to uh, the public anyway yep not a great reason to go public. Um, and you'll have some selling shareholders who are using this as an exit strategy to monetize their investment. Also not a great reason to go public. You'd want to see concrete reasons why the company wants to access capital markets,
1: needs the cash to do something for the future. Alright, we will get eventually to the, uh, the cash and what they might or might not do with it. But um, let's talk about the competitive landscape for a second, because we've talked before about companies like Google. Um, probably on some level, looking forward to this day, looking forward to the day that Facebook is a public company, um, the playing field is leveled in terms of what they have to disclose, what they have to pay attention to, what they have to deal with, just in terms of the SEC. Um, who are the big threats right now? Is it is it Google? Is that number 1 on the competitive threat list? What do you think, Joe?
3: Yeah, definitely, because Google is the fellow data kingpin, and advertising kingpin, and mindshare kingpin. So, they're definitely up there. But I think a more subtle one that's a little more broad is just mobile at large. Because Facebook as a platform was built for the desktop, and it's not really transferred all that well to mobile. And you can see that, because when you start looking at revenue for Facebook, you're seeing more people using mobile, but they don't get as much revenue per mobile user, because it's tough to stuff ads in there. And it's going to be a real challenge for them. To transition to that world, whereas Twitter was actually designed for a you know microblogging smartphone world.
1: Now, do, now, when you say mobile, are you including a company like Apple in that? Because I've heard people argue that Apple is not really a competitor because Apple doesn't really have. Uh, the same appetite for social media that Facebook and Twitter and and those kind of companies have.
3: I think it's less the actual companies themselves and just the challenge of making money on mobile, uh, serving up ads on a smartphone in a way that isn't obtrusive or annoying to users.
1: James, what do you think? I think it's a mix of Google in
4: the short term and then somebody we haven't seen yet in the long term. We don't know how sticky this Facebook format is going to be for, for indefinitely. We look at Netscape Navigator, that, that the whole market for a long time until it didn't. Um, and it's, it's worked like that way with, with a bunch of different things on the Internet, MySpace before Facebook. There could be something else. Right?
5: Yeah, I think the guys have, have got it exactly right. When we think of Facebook now, we think of an advertising model. We really don't know what the model will look like five or ten years from now. Will there be a subscription-based model or a membership-based model where they go a completely different direction and have multiple streams of revenue? Um, Right now, it's an advertising company, and it has to compete uh, for those dollars. But I just don't know what it'll be ten years from I now. I think we
4: should point out too that this ad market is fairly cyclical. Uh, first quarter revenues for Facebook were down six percent sequentially. So this ad thing is kind of matured. It might right. grow a little bit. They they really have to do something they, different. They we s- haven't seen that.
5: They screamed out seasonality when you look at Q four to Q one. Who knows if that's really the case? Well, revenue was um, up
3: forty five percent year over year, so it wasn't. All lost. But then again, you had LinkedIn post 73% marketing growth. I was just going to say, we we,
1: we talked about LinkedIn earlier in the week uh, on our Market Foolery podcast. Um, I mean, Ron, that's that's a company that, um, you know, when you look at Revenue models—they've got sort of the premium membership model. They've got businesses, uh, including the Motley Fool, um, paying them on a monthly basis uh, for access to their data. Um, What is the um, the lowest hanging fruit for Facebook when it comes to a membership model, a premium membership model? Is it something like the business space, like a LinkedIn, or is it more um, video gaming, video streaming, something like that?
5: I think they can go a number of different routes, obviously, and they probably will. I do think something like LinkedIn makes sense because you know you have all these people in one place and you can really get the network effects from something like that and you can charge as LinkedIn does. Um, a base level price and then perhaps a premium price for, for a little more. Whether they build or buy, whether they go out and make an acquisition or they, they do it in house themselves, I think that remains to be seen.
1: I was going to say, Joe, I mean, one relatively easy way to do that is rather than just build it themselves, they can go out and buy a Netflix, they can go out and buy a Hulu or, you know, um, a gaming company like Zynga. Um, I mean, if you're Facebook and you're suddenly about to be flush with cash. Um, th- we just saw them buy Instagram for a billion. What What do you think is a smart, likely acquisition, if it's not one of those companies I just made uh, named, um, m- maybe one sort of space that they should be looking at?
3: Yeah, well, the, first of all, they should be saving cash, because this is a boom-and-bust industry, and they should have a huge war chest of a balance sheet. But looking past that, I think Netflix could be interesting. The stock's been hit, and there are some corporate ties there. They've done some experimenting. And Netflix does have some contracts, relationships, and brand cachet that could plug in well.
4: James? Yeah, I, I agree, actually. I think I think Joe's first point is, is is the most true one, is that we don't know what's going to happen. Facebook's future is uncertain. They need to stockpile this cash. It would be dumb to go into spending spree. It doesn't mean they won't do it. It would just be a dumb thing they would do. Um, but yeah, the, the, the benefit of, of, of personalization could extend to a lot of different things. I think, you know, Netflix being one. The other thing is simply to sell marketers access to their data. And maybe if you're a Facebook user, you you pay if you don't want as much of your data given out. I mean, it could sort of hold you hostage like that, too. Ron, what do you think
5: in in the nearer term, I'd like to see them do some technology acquisitions, some smaller mobile based um, technology um, things that will help them with that platform and then then down the road, I think maybe they can look at the the bigger brand name companies that will take the
3: the business in a different direction. Yeah, I know a lot of people have talked about them buying Zynga, but I actually don't think that'd be a good move for them because they own the platform itself, and there are so many people competing on that. I would just say the real value is owning the platform and You know, winners will come and go in terms of serving up games to Facebook users, but Zynga won't be the only successful name.
1: You know, when we uh, look at different companies that succeed in a big way, there are often uh, hidden winners beyond that. There's a ripple effect that takes place. Um, You could argue that Zynga is sort of a hidden winner with the success of Facebook. Um, In the wake of this IPO, Joe, what are a couple of companies that you think um, could be in that category of sort of hidden winners.
3: Yeah, well, they're all, you know, your Groupons, your Zingas, your LinkedIn's, they're all hidden winners in a way because of the Facebook valuation. Mm-hmm. So it's coming out, it's probably going to IPO at around 25, 26 times sales. That is such a rich price. You know, LinkedIn's around 18, and 18 is astronomical. So 25, 26 is just, you know, off the charts. And suddenly it, it makes LinkedIn look relatively cheap, which I'm sure all their investors appreciate.
4: James? I agree with that. I have nothing to add. <laughs> Fair
1: enough. I th- I I
5: think is. companies that can benefit from, as I said, that that, whole, that huge network of sure. people where they can access, and, and that's the advertising model, quite frankly, um, so people that need to access millions, hundreds of millions of companies, and, and there's plenty of those, too many to name, um, are definitely going to benefit. But it's not necessarily from the IPO, it's from the existence
1: of Facebook in general.
4: Hundreds of millions of companies? Hundreds of millions of, of people, oh, people on okay, Facebook.
1: Okay, okay. <laughs> um, just to, uh, to wrap up on Facebook, um, I, I think it's fair to say that we um, pretty much always counsel people. You don't need to get on an IPO. Um, see how a company does after a, at least a couple of quarters in the public markets before you, you get in and buy shares. Uh, that being said, uh, for people who are looking at potentially buying shares of Facebook somewhere down the road, what is the metric they should be watching? Joe, I'll just start with you.
4: Hmm.
3: I'm watching revenue per user, and it's not something Facebook will necessarily provide, but it's easy math to do yourself. You just take the amount of revenue they have and divide it by the number of active users, and on a given quarter and multiply it by four. See, it's very simple math. You'll have to trust me. But uh, <laughs> really, it is a simple measure, and it's basically just a way of seeing how well they're monetizing the traffic coming into the site because you know, clicks and eyeballs aren't enough. They actually have to bring home dollars.
4: Jim? Math over the radio works great, too. Yeah, huh? um,
3: yeah, I'm sure everyone It's compelling.
4: <laughs> Not so much a metric, but what are they going to do to replace ads? I would say, wait, let's see what that decision is, and then decide.
5: Find the second act, you mean? Yeah. Run? Net income or free cash flow growth rates, how are they going to grow into that 100 times earnings? And if the, the growth rates are there,
1: then you can start to get interested. If they're not, you got to stay far away. Some big underpants to fill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Coming up, we'll give you a look at the stocks on our radar. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money.
4: money makes world, go around, world, go around,
1: Welcome money back to Motley makes Fool Money. Chris Hill here in the studio with Joe Mager, James Early, and Ron Gross. Guys, before we get to the stocks on our radar... Uh, is it just me, or, or have CEOs, some CEOs in this country, just gone nuts recently? I mean, we've we've seen between you know the stuff happening at companies like Yahoo, Chesapeake Energy, um, you know, it seems like it's really given way, Ron, to activist <laughs> investors yeah. like Dan Loeb coming in at Yahoo and agitating for some board seats. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl Icahn at Chesapeake Energy. What do you make of that? As a general rule of thumb, do you like to see that?
5: Well, I, I used to be an activist investor in my hedge fund career, so I think there really is something to say um, for activist investors who will hold uh, a company accountable for operating correctly and for having the correct corporate governance. I thought you were going to say um, hostage. No, no <laughs> hostages. I do like to see activists, though, that are are, are not in it for the quick buck and yeah. going to flip the stock. I wanted to see them being long-term shareholders, being long-term involved board members. Ron,
4: what would you say is a percent of activists who are who are the short-term buck guys versus the long-term? And how do we know the difference as investors? You can look at their track record
5: um, to see how long they typically hold stocks, um, and especially the ones that they've been successful on in getting what they want done. Do they they Mm -hmm. run for the door once they've been successful? Um, And I would have to say, I think over 50% are not long term. Gotcha. And
1: which one were you? I was both. (laughs) All right, we will uh, get to the stocks on our radar. We're bringing our man, Steve Broda, from the other side of the glass uh, with a question. Uh, for each one of you. And just to mix it up, because we haven't done this in a while, you can ask Steve a question. So, Ron Gross, you're up first.
5: So, we talked a lot about Facebook. I thought was trying to look at something that went completely the opposite direction. And I noticed today that Home Depot HD was down today um, on earnings, one of the companies that re- report kind of late. But, I mean, net income was still up almost around 30%. This company's still doing well. It's a play on uh, the economic recovery, a housing recovery. Maybe not the cheapest stock at 19 times earnings, but it's Home Depot. Uh, so, I'm going to spend some time digging
1: a little bit. Steve, question for Ron?
0: You bet. My question for Ron about Home Depot, how do you ensure consistency at Home Depots across the country? Either people have Great or terrible experiences. How do you make sure everyone has a great experience at home Depot?
5: Good question yeah, That is a good question. I actually don't enjoy the shopping experience at Home Depot, and it's one reason i've I've stayed away from it. It's a little bit overwhelming for me, especially because I'm not that handy. <laughs> um, uh, but I mean it comes from the top. You need to put in procedures that that you know that are just consistent across across the board, and you need to you know c- keep that centralized If you get a little too decentralized then then it suffers. Do you have a question for Steve? A question for Steve. So w- everyone knows you're a fantastic studio engineer here, Steve, but I was wondering, what you major in in college? Is it related to what you do now?
0: I was a theater major in
5: college. So, so. perfect.
1: <laughs> there is hope. There is hope. There is hope, <laughs> there is hope. <laughs> right. for all those theater majors who listen to our show. <laughs> Uh, James Early, your stock this week? Well, Steve, I know you're just about as concerned with the
4: U.S.'s decrepit water and sewage infrastructure (laughs) system as (laughs) I am. I was just
5: saying that to me before the show.
4: I'm going to talk about American Water Works. The ticker is AWK, which I think is also the editorial abbreviation for awkward. Uh, This is the largest U.S. water and sewage service. It's in 30 states, two Canadian provinces. Just raises dividend 8.7%. However, I'm not sure that I totally like it. It's on my radar. It was bought by a German company, taken private, then... Unprivated through an IPO a couple Privated. of years back. Uh, Unprivated. That Unprivated, that is wrong. Um, <laughs> it's, it's struggling a little bit to, to raise rates as high as it could like, but if we start to see a more favorable regulatory climate for, for utilities, this is a stock that could really rock it up.
0: Steve, my question for you is desalinization. When is that going to be?
4: A- uh, that's that's a long way away. I mean, the, uh, Veolia, V e is a ticker is an II recommendation that is a world leader in, in desalinization. But this is, and it matters because a lot of the world's population lives close to the ocean, but it's expensive. it's It's not something that we're going to see mainstream for a while. James, do you have a question for Steve. Steve, speaking of water, what is the largest thing you have flushed down the toilet? <laughs>
2: Oh,
0: that is a very, very bizarre question. I don't think anything comes to mind. I, I did try to stick a Star Wars Jawa up a faucet once as a child, but I don't <laughs> sort think of that qualifies.
3: Okay, yeah. that involves close, plumbing. Close enough. <laughs> Joe Maker? I'm going to go with J.P. Morgan. The, the stock's been pounded and really? it's selling at a slight premium to tangible book value. It historically, it's sold at more than 100% premium to that. It's very cheap, cheaper against tangible book than it has for 95% in the last decade. Everyone hates the stock right now and they're afraid, but as investors we want to be greedy when others are fearful, and I think now is a very nice time to get into a very unpopular stock. And the ticker? Uh, JPM.
1: JPM. Steve Broyd, a question for Joe?
0: How do I know if I can trust a company that is that large and does so many different things?
3: I think most investors are asking the same question, and that's why the stock is so cheap right now. I think you just have to look at their track record. I mean, these guys have been around for a long, long time. J.P. Morgan himself actually bailed out the U.S. government once. So, this is a firm that's got a track record, and I think you have to point to that over a short-term blip.
1: Joe, do you have a question for Steve?
3: Yeah. Do you have any recommendations on laundry detergent?
0: <laughs> um, that's a very good question. We we are a Tide no, family. No, it's not. <laughs> it's really not <laughs> no, a good okay. question. It's a practical, I'm it's practical a question. A practical I'm playing well, along. Compared We've... to James's question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I we usually go with Tide. Okay, scented or unscented? Uh, unscented. My okay. wife is good a big choice. fan of the unscented. Not no perfumes. Just that's good. Keep got it clear. Skin.
1: Uh, so, Steve, I got to ask Home Depot, uh, American Water. J.P. Morgan, you got a stock of those I think the water
0: company
4: sounds pretty cool.
5: Didn't you do two sewage companies in a row? I've won the last
1: three challenges, I'll remind you. (laughs) Uh, With sewage companies? Uh, Two of them have probably been sewage companies. Fascinating. And amazing, James was not penalized in any way by Steve for that bizarre question that he asked him.
0: (laughs) Definitely weird, but hey,
1: bring on the waterworks. Joe Mager, James Early, Ron Gross. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Coming up. Conversation with Dan Gross about the myth of American decline and the rise of the new economy. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. The doomsdayers and declinists, the Debbie Downers and Double Dippers are too pessimistic by half. So writes Dan Gross, columnist and economics editor of Yahoo Finance and author of the new book, Better, Stronger, Faster The Myth of American Decline and the Rise of a New Economy. Dan, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. So I got to ask, why the happy face?
2: Well really, after you know, I think maybe heavy drinking could be part of it. <laughs> well, you know, I've been around for a while, and I've been also outside of the you know the Aclaord or the, the axis of misery, where you know so much the f- dysfunction in Washington uh, and New York, in finance and politics, and I've had the opportunity to get out. I've been to 30 states in the last few years. I've been to 15 to 20 countries and had a chance to sort of see some of the developments that are shaping our world. And I think a lot of them are actually working in our favor. There are places in this country where unemployment is 3 and 4 percent instead of 8 and 9 percent. There are places where foreign companies are investing like crazy. There are places around the world where the demand for U.S. products is growing very rapidly. Our exports are at record levels, and when you look around the world, as people grow richer, a lot of what they they want to do is buy the stuff we make, whether those are Boeing jets or GE gas turbines or the food we produce, or they want to come here and you know pay forty thousand dollars a year to get uh, a higher education, or come here as tourists. We had a record number of foreign tourists. So to a large degree. foreign consumers are making up for uh, the domestic demand that evaporated with uh, the credit problems.
1: Now, one of the things that you address in the book is um, what you call myths about the U.S. economy, and, and one of the big ones is the myth of not making stuff the world wants. What are we, what are we making that the world wants? Right.
2: Well, every, every month when the uh, data comes out, I tweet, the U.S. doesn't make anything the world wants Except 186 billion dollars of stuff we exported last month. <laughs> Exports, actually, you know, they, they fell very rapidly after Lehman Brothers crash. They bottomed in April 2009 at 125 billion a month. started to turn up before the rest of the economy did. Obama said we should double that figure, and people laughed. Uh, the most recent month, I believe, March, we were at 186 billion. so it's up 50 percent on a monthly basis. It's up, I think, 35 percent on an annual basis. We are the world's number one exporter in terms of the value of stuff we export. Uh, So a lot of it is goods, and that's, again, very expensive things like Boeing jets, which cost a couple hundred million bucks a pop, GE. I was at a a GE gas turbine plant with Jeff Immelt last year in Greenville, South Carolina. They will produce 90 of these things that retail for about $25, 30000000 million a pop. Every single one of them was going to a foreign customer. Agriculture is a 140 billion dollar export industry. So we produce where the Saudi Arabia of grains. We make corn and wheat and cows and chicken that go around the world, where everybody is eating better. And we actually export services. We're primarily a service economy. And I was talking about education, higher education, record number of foreign students, 700,000 coming here and paying tuition. That's an export. When you see those people with funny accents in the Gap. Or at Disney World or at McDonald's, that's an export. Tourism, record number in 2011, 63 million. Uh, so we make experiences, we make brands, and we make products that people like.
1: And going back to the agriculture, apparently uh, a lot of people around the world like pecans.
2: Yes, I would say, you know, we're the, the Chinese are, are going to corner our nuts. <laughs> and, you know, that was a, a headline in the Wall Street Journal. Hey, now. But, you could see this in industry after industry. There, there's a great article in the Journal that sort of pecan exports and nut exports generally went from sort of nothing in four five to China to, you know, six, seven 700000000 million. Uh, China is a very food and health conscious society. Nuts are supposed to be good for your brain power. There's a source of protein. Uh, they ain't cheap. And uh, they are being shipped over there like crazy.
1: Now, one of the... Uh things I, I gotta say I, I love the the anecdotes that you share in your book you know you mentioned uh, being on the factory floor with Jeff uh, amount from from GE um, one of the things that you really paint the picture of is uh, is the scene in Davos at you know at this economic forum where you know everyone's on their iPhones um, there's a, a party that Google is throwing that everyone is clamoring to get into um, you know Mark Zuckerberg is wandering around somewhere and, and people can't wait to get a glimpse of him um what do you think that says about sort of american innovation and in particular um how that spells out job growth
2: well i think it says something quite positive and i've been going every year for the last five years and every year they're running down america telling us oh the persian gulf those sovereign wealth funds they're hot and they blow up oh it's china oh it's turkey and meanwhile yeah they're 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 hanging out every word you know cheryl sandberg uh, cheryl sandberg chief operating officer says at lunch i've been at dinners where they ask Randy Zuckerberg, the sister of Mark, to get up and sing, and everybody ooze and ahs. It's it's even though she probably would not make the Hollywood round of American Idol. The big event is the Google Party, where you have private equity titans and various forms of royalty angling to get in. And once they're inside, they are entranced not by uh, any illicit substance, but by their iPhones. And I look at those three companies. 10 years ago, really didn't exist at all. I mean, Apple was trading for less than the value of cash on its shares. Google was a piece of code, and Mark Zuckerberg was, I don't know, 16, 17. They have a market cap of $850 billion combined today. They are exporters. They are magnets for human capital. They are brands that represent the U.S. the way GM and Chevrolet once did. And they are kind of ecosystems for innovation. You know, the wrap is, well, look, where are all these jobs gonna come from? Together those three companies employ a hundred thousand people directly, which isn't all that much. And you know, when Steve Jobs died, people said, Look, you know, he didn't really create that many jobs. Apple only employs, you know, I don't know, ten, fifteen thousand people in the US, which entirely misses the point. Uh the importance of the telegraph and the railroad was not, you know, the the sort of crappy jobs that were created by people digging ditches and uh putting down rails in the eighteen seventies it was that they built this infrastructure that every single business could use to be more efficient and that entire new industries were built on and i think you know with the internet it's been the same way it wasn't the jobs that global crossing created uh when you know they they laid down the fiber it's what people did with it so apple aside from creating jobs for all the people who work there think of what it's done for the entertainment industry and for the you know the people who develop apps and for publishing and for music for filmed entertainment. Uh, think of what Google has done for pretty much every business in the way it markets itself. Think of the way Facebook incubates other businesses like Zynga. And of course, you know, it's now becoming a platform for marketing as well. So the key is, can you create um, companies and enterprises that allow and inspire other people to do the same? And I think the evidence shows that, you know, yes, we can.
1: Do you think part of the of what's going on is maybe we need a different definition for job creation, or maybe we need to think about it differently? Because it seems like, and you touch on this in the book, that, look, the the days of single company creating tens of thousands of jobs, that's far less likely to happen. But what's more likely is this ripple effect where company creates X number of jobs, and then the supply chain that feeds into that as, you know, or, or flows out of that as a result, that's where you get 5x, 10x.
2: Absolutely. And, and this is, you know, Jeff Immelt of GE is, is supposed to be Obama's job czar, and then everybody says, well, look, GE doesn't employ that many people and employs people overseas, which again also misses the point. When you go to that turbine factory, first of all, it's heavily automated. You don't see that many people, but it, it might employ 3,000 you know, 3, people. And I asked him, where all the people? And he said, look, for, for every job here, there are eight jobs in the supply chain. I mean, that's what lean manufacturing is. So the people who are making the ball bearings up in Oregon and the people who make the pallets and the people who deliver and the logistics people and the trains. And this is why I think manufacturing is really important. Uh, you know, you could set up a hedge fund and you might create a job for an assistant and uh, end up creating jobs for some landscapers. When you decide to make stuff in this country, um, you draw your suppliers, so you, you bring in a lot of suppliers, and it calls into action all sorts of other services. With, you know, the financial people, the accountants, uh, the maintenance people, the logistics people. Um, I have an example: the book of MCR, which decided uh, to start making uh, ATM kiosks in uh, in Georgia again, and and you know, part of their strategy is. We want all our supplies to come from a 250-mile radius. That lets us do just-in-time manufacturing. So even though their assembly plant there may employ eight or 900 people, they're really creating a lot of jobs
1: throughout. Coming up, more with Dan Gross, including a round of Buy, seller Hold. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Money is honey. Where can my honey be? You're listening to Motley Full Money, talking with Dan Gross, author of the new book, Better, Stronger, Faster, The Myth of American Decline and the Rise of a New Economy. I want to look outside uh, the U.S. borders uh, for a minute here um, because as investors, when we look at a country like China, uh, we see it through the lens of you know stocks like Baidu, China Mobile, Sina, Sohu. Um, there's a lot of talk, and there has been for years, about China becoming the preeminent economic superpower in the world, but um, one of the things you touch on is it's an incredibly fragile economy. Uh, what what are what are some of the big threats to China's economy?
2: Well, aside from the you know lack of freedom and this sort of blind human rights lawyer. Well, right, yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Aside well, from I that, I think so is you know it's if, 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 if I've been to China a couple times, it's enormously impressive what's going on there. On the other hand, you know, you don't see the sun, and it's not because the weather is bad. It's because of the smog. I went jogging in Beijing and in about an hour. Uh, I mean, say after about a mile I could start to taste the air. Uh, If the elites start to get fed up with the fact that their kids are all having asthma and young people are getting cancer, uh, that that to me is not a sustainable mode of economic development. Uh, They graduate. you You think we have a jobs crisis. They graduate, you know many millions of people from college uh, and if they don't have jobs you know they don't have outlets for dissent uh, they have demonstrations and riots as outlet for dissent not elections so i think one my takeaway from china is this enormous confidence in their ability to engineer things uh, you will visit a city in the interior and they will show you a model for an industrial park you know with all these buildings et cetera and if you come back 3 years later it'll probably be there They have supreme faith in their ability to do that. Uh, As far as their ability to kind of manage people's expectations and meet the aspirations of, the rising aspirations of people um, without having disorder, you know, they have a big lack of confidence. And the last time I was there, I was taken to a a village a couple hours hours outside of Xi'an where there were sort of, you know, 50 or 60 people living on fifteen dollar a month pensions who had just gotten electricity a couple uh... years ago and there are four hundred million people living like this in this country so they have a, a they have a long way to go and they also have a serious demographic problem they've had a one child policy for thirty years so they're going to have uh, a lot of old people and not quite as many young and working people to sustain them and they're still a relatively poor society so i think there's plenty of reason to be enthused about China as a new market, uh, especially for U.S. consumer products companies. But I think there's also, I think that China bulls overlook a lot of the you know, potential negatives there.
1: I have to ask you about Europe and obviously with everything going on there I'm curious, what to what extent do you think the problems in Europe can undo any of the re- recovery that we've had here in the U.S.?
2: Well, I think you know, when you look at our, our stock market and our biggest companies, the IBM's, Caterpillars, Cokes, et cetera, who have been putting up impressive numbers uh for the last couple of years, I think the ability of European demand to hurt them is not that great. I mean, if you were counting on the Greek consumer or Spanish construction for new big new orders, you've been that's been in the tank for the last few years. And I think, you know, in Italy, you know, slow growth is sort of presumed. That they've been having slow growth for 15 years. What's, when you look at these companies' earnings reports, it's you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, it's Latin America, it's Asia. So I think the ability to kind of um, put a dent in the overall kind of top-line growth story of a lot of companies is relatively limited just because even though Europe's very big, it has not been a source of growth. Uh, you weren't getting five and ten percent revenue growth out of europe i think the problem is if it infects the financial system which then hurts our banks which then hurts everything there the danger is much greater because there's a higher degree of interconnectivity despite the fact that banks have higher capital we don't have a lehman brothers with thirty to one leverage anymore um, it's not good to suffer serious losses when you have eight-to-one leverage, and that's the situation our banks are in now.
1: Before we wrap up with a round of buy, seller hold, uh, I have to ask, because I, I read your stuff on Yahoo Finance, uh, and anyone listening, yes, obviously go out and get the book, but but di- get to Yahoo Finance online and, and read what, what Dan is writing about every week. Um, when we talk about the health of the U.S. economy, um, it's almost like the usual suspects of, of data points come up, you know, GDP, unemployment. Um, I'm just curious about, you know, a potential Dan Gross indicator. What's what, what are like one or two things in the economy that you watch to really gauge the health of the economy that you think maybe should get a little bit more attention than they do?
2: Well, I think auto sales. Uh, you know, autos are the biggest manufacturing sector. We make an awful lot of them at home and foreign companies are investing to to build here um... they are tethered obviously to consumer confidence they are tethered to finance because a lot of them are bought with credit it's the biggest retail sales uh... sector we have so they trigger things like sales taxes and a lot of activity um, so i think that's a very uh, to me that's a very big number not just for you know, because a lot of big companies are involved, but it says something to me about the, the health of the consumer and because, again, this is one of the things that's been overlooked, a huge amount of innovation. Forget about the Volt. Forget about hybrids. Um, the typical car sold today gets 15% better gas mileage uh, than the typical car sold four years ago. GM sold 100,000 cars in March that get over, I believe, 35 miles per gallon. And what all that means is that we are much better with each passing week, you know, two hundred and fifty thousand new cars hit the streets, much better able to handle high gas prices than we were a year ago, six months ago, two years ago. And I think that's one of the reasons that uh rising gas prices have not put such a dent in consumer spending. It speaks to efficiency, the rebirth, the restructuring of GM and Chrysler, Ford's very impressive turnaround efforts, and when you start having more production good thing you know we've seen uh, more sales lead to more production and higher levels of sales have also led foreign companies to make foreign direct investment and build new auto plants here so i think that's one area that i you know it, it gets it gets attention but i don't think people are appreciating this the sort of full dimensions of what those numbers are telling us
1: i think you have got to get with the automakers and license the dgi the dan gross indicator <laughs> Uh we will close out with a round of buy seller hold buy seller hold the future of the euro
2: Oh, sell
1: Do you think five years from now it's still a currency?
2: Yeah, I absolutely do. I hope it's a weaker currency because i I like to go to Europe and it's still <laughs> so enormously expensive. I can't wait for Greece to exit because I can relive my youth when I went to Santorini and paid ten bucks a night to stay in somebody's house. <laughs>
1: Your book takes an optimistic view of the economy, and this economist is probably best known for his pessimism, buy, seller hold Noriel Robini. Buy.
2: The guy throws great parties. He's <laughs> uh, at, at the Google party in uh, Davos. You can always see him on the dance floor. Um, he, uh, you know, I also think he's very pretty. He made a, a business out of, uh, you know, started as a blog about global economics that has turned into a pretty large enterprise that employs lots of people, so... I'm Long Noriel.
1: Plus, you can't beat the nickname Dr. Doom. There you go. Uh, And finally, the title of your book is a reference to the TV show The Six Million Dollar Man. So with that in mind, buy, sell, or hold the bionic woman.
2: Buy. I mean, she's due. Look, after my book comes out, this is going to stimulate a craze for, uh, you know, Steve Austin and and the Six Million Dollar Man figurines. (laughs) Um, And so that means, you know there will be a subsidiary boom in Bionic Woman. Lindsay Wagner was the actress.
1: Emmy Award winner, There you go, Lindsay Wagner. The book is Better, Stronger, Faster, The Myth of American Decline and the Rise of a New Economy. Dan Gross, thanks so much for being here. Anytime. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this week's show let us know what you think. You can always drop us an email, at radio at fool.com is our email address, or you can leave us a comment on iTunes. And speaking of iTunes, if you haven't already, check out our daily podcast, Market Foolery. It is our daily take on what's happening in the stock market and the world of investing. That's Market Foolery on iTunes and online at marketfoolery.com. That's it for this edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Mac Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.